Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, I had a remarkable event last night. Um, Time changed, of course, and so it relates to that. I woke up and it was about 1.44. Not about, that's what it was. It was 1.44. And I thought, wow, like time's going to change here in just a little bit. And so I kind of like didn't really try to stay awake, kind of like drifted back and kind of like laid there for a while. Looked at the clock again and it was 1.59. And I thought, you know what? Like I've, I've never, like I've never done this. Like I've never actually looked at my phone to watch the time change. And so I thought, I'm going to do that. So I literally, you know, got my phone, and it was like 1.59, kept it so the backlight st- still was on. I thought, like, what's, like, will it ever hit 2 o'clock? Like, like what's that going to look like? And I know you're all on the edge of your seats, just like <laughs> so excited, as I was last night. And sure enough, at 1.59, it went directly to 3 o'clock. Never did to, and so not only was it an epic moment just in and of itself, uh, somebody reminded me earlier between services, that like, hey, like if it actually passes that we never change time again, I may have just seen the final time change ever in New Jersey. Like I'm a part of history. I can tell you you're very excited about that. Um, yeah, laughter of derision. Um, According to a Pew study, and this is connected, the vast majority, 71% of people who leave the faith of their childhood today do so because, quote, they gradually drifted away. There, weren't, there wasn't some huge barrier to belief. There wasn't some one singular epic moment. There wasn't one decisive point in time or issue that they faced. Instead, 71% of those who move on from maybe the faith that they picked up in their childhood do so because they gradually drift. And for some reason, that strikes me. And in, and in many ways, I kind of wish that instead of it being gradual, it would be kind of like 159 to 3 o'clock. Because I can see that. I can see when it happens. I notice it. It's decisive. It's defined. It's there. It's visible. I literally saw my phone go from 159 to 3 o'clock. And I kind of wish that I could see like the spiritual drift in my life that decisively, that easily, that definitively, that clearly. But instead, it's generally kind of a drift. The reason I bring that up is because we're in this series in the book of Revelation. And John is writing the book of Revelation 
to a group of people who are part of the Roman Empire. And one of their greatest dangers is of the 71% of the gradual drift. Kind of picture this with me, and I think you'll be able to kind of like step into how this feels and kind of like feel it with your being and, and sense it. The book of Revelation was written about 60, 65 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's a significant amount of time. When Jesus came, there were a number, dozens of people who had already come who made some sort of messianic claim. They were going to be the grand deliverer. They were going to be the great rescuers. Rome pretty much took care of a fair share of them. Uh, There were thousands of crucifixions literally in that time, and many of them were crucified, gotten rid of, wiped away. Jesus came, and he himself said, I'm from God. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I will bring rescue. I will bring deliverance. But as you read the Gospels, you kind of get the lens through which people at that time heard that message. And so they began to ask Jesus questions like, cool, that's awesome. Like, where am I going to sit in your governmental administration? Uh, Where am I going to rank in terms of those that rule on your behalf? When is it that Rome will be overthrown and will finally be free? Well, eventually, Jesus was crucified as well, just like dozens of messianic claimants before him. He certainly rose from the dead. That was awesome. It was miraculous. The only problem is after that, he sends to heaven. And he says, okay, guys, kind of carry out my mission of communicating to people that God has brought deliverance through my death, burial, and resurrection. That that, that brings together the gap of separation that exists between you and the eternal God who is your creator. Well, my guess is just kind of, so kind of put yourself in that position. You're probably still thinking, cool, like, so we'll do that for five or 10 years, maybe 20 max. But, you know, once we do it for five, 10, 15, 20 years, like, you'll come back as you said, and everything's going to be right. Instead, here they are at roughly 90, 95 AD. 60 to 65 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and things are actually worse than when Jesus left. Rather than the project going forward, the project is going backwards. Rather than them saying this great, awesome rescue that Jesus was going to bring that they anticipated, now they've seen Rome kill followers of Jesus at increasing rates. They were kind of looking for, okay, 159. It's going to come. It's going to be decisive. It's going to be clear. It's going to be definable. And instead, it's 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60. And like, is this thing still going? And so John writes Revelation as a revelation of Jesus to encourage them not to be part of the 71% who gradually drift. Knowing that they're probably not having their expectations met in terms of Jesus' immediate return. 
They're undergoing persecution. Their loved ones are losing jobs. Because they're faithful to Christ, they're not able to buy daily provisions in many cases. Rome is crucifying at a higher rate than ever before. And so can you picture yourself receiving this letter of revelation that tells you, be faithful, persevere. I get it, it's not as clearly as 159 to 3 o'clock, but keep persevering, keep moving forward. Just a little bit of background that might just be kind of a little helpful to you to put Revelation in context. We mentioned early in Revelation, there's been seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Um, all of those brought various levels of judgment. So we'll put a big R here. This is the people that John is writing to. They're the people of Rome. Uh, we'll put an E back here. This is for the country of Egypt. In Revelation, there's seals, trumpets, and bowls. And John points out that many of the judgments are actually based on the pattern all the way back in Egypt. In the land of Egypt, this is almost 1,500 years before Rome. God's people were in the land of Egypt. They were suffering. There was challenge. They were held in slavery. They were beaten. They were deprived. There was a guy named Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt. He was haughty and arrogant. He had the world under his control. And God would send plagues to the nation of Egypt to remind Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, hey, you're not as powerful as you think that you are. Egypt is not as permanent and longstanding as you think that it is. And so the trumpets, the seals, the bowls, actually reflect back to remind the people, hey, once upon a time in your history, 1,500 years ago, talk about a long span of time, there was a part of your nation, part of your people were held in bondage and slavery. And God sent judgment and plagues to remind them that, hey, you're not as powerful as you think you are. There's also Babylon. Babylon was about 900 years after Egypt. Babylon was once again a period of time where there was suffering, there was hardship. Listen to these words from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar says this, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Boy, does that ever echo Rome. And so this morning in Revelation 17 and 18, we're going to find Babylon referenced as sort of as a symbol of Rome's allure, Rome's arrogance. Nebuchadnezzar says, this is for my glory. I built this. It's exactly the mindset of Rome. It's actually the mindset of Caesar. Caesar says, I rule the world. This is for my glory. This is for my majesty. And so God is constantly drawing the people back. Hey, remember Egypt. Eventually, God released his people from Egypt. Remember Babylon. Remember, I brought Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar down, and I released my people from Babylon. Because now you're in Rome. There's the all-powerful Caesar. There's the opulence, the wealth, the power, the glory, the majesty of Rome. But just like these... It's not going to be permanent. It's going to fall as well. It's not the foundation on which you want to build your life. That's exactly what's happening in Revelation. 
but also certainly looks forward to future as well, that we would continue not to build our lives on what is seen as well. I'm going to Sharon to come, and she's going to read Revelation chapter 17, and then we'll dive in, and we'll do kind of a lot of farce, a little less trees today, a little bit big picture, but let's dive in to Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into our wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes, and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, who names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with them will be all his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority 
until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Thank you, Sharon. Um, so once again, John is saying to these folks, listen, don't simply interpret your story in the moment in which it happens. Don't simply define reality. Don't simply define your story by the singular moment in which it happens. Instead, look at the story of what God is doing for thousands of years. Have confidence, have faith, trust him, persevere, be faithful. Because while you may not see 159 to 3 o'clock, God is on the move. God is at work. We'll spend some time in the first half of chapter 17. We'll kind of move through the rest of it fairly quickly. But let's just jump into verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. He references seven bowls. Uh, those are the bowls that John talked about last week in Revelation chapter 16. A little bit of a connection here. You might say, like, why is it referencing bowls? What's the significance of bowls? That actually goes all the way back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, when we see the elders and creatures uh, in the throne room of God. Here's what it says. They were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. So it seems to be happening simply this. Earlier on in Revelation 5, the bowls hold the prayers of God's people. They're incense going up to God. So God sending the bowls of judgment seems to be a response of answering the prayers of God's people. Maybe you struggle with prayer, probably most of us do. I kind of like, I wish prayer would operate like 159 to 3 o'clock. Often it doesn't. Instead, it's more long-term. It's kind of the unseen. It's what we don't immediately see as being defined. But this is response to the prayers of God's people. Notice also it mentions the prostitute. Uh, prostitutes in ancient times, especially in Scripture, were seen as, number one, certainly sexual immorality, but also unfaith spiritual unfaithfulness to God. Spiritual unfaithfulness to your relationship with him. So she sits by many waters. Many waters are again referencing often waters where the place from which evil would come. That was seen as the place of the chaos, the evil, the wickedness of the world. Probably also kind of the waters referencing the, the nations at large. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder what she represents at the end of chapter 17, verse 18, here's what it says. The woman you saw is the great city, that's Rome, that rules over the kings of the earth. We'll dive into that a little bit more later. Verse 2 of chapter 17, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. What's happening there? Well, sometimes we see evil as being a little bit overly simplistic, and overly basic. Evil certainly is sort of a crossing of some kind of moral line. When we take advantage of another human being, when we are perpetrators of, of evil and violence on others, when our greed and jealousy cause us to cross some sort of moral line, yes, 
That's evil. That's wickedness. The Bible sees that as falling short of the glory of God. But it's not just that. In fact, what we're going to find out is that in Rome, not only is evil crossing some sort of moral line, evil is also being consumers of God's good gifts, but in a way that we consume them independently and self-centeredly and arrogantly. In other words, evil can be utilizing the good gifts of God, gifts of food, pleasure, comfort, sexuality. It can be utilizing them not out of thankfulness and gratefulness to God, but instead out of consumption, out of arrogance, out of independence, out of a sense that that they comprise my life. They're the ingredients to really where life is found rather than receiving them as gifts from our creator and redeemer where life is ultimately found. The essence of sin is not necessarily crossing a moral line. Yes, it can be that. But the essence of sin is not just that. The essence of sin is self-ownership. The essence of sin is self-determination. The essence of sin is arrogance. The essence of sin is taking God's good gifts to us and saying, I earned these, I deserve these, I consume these, these are mine. The essence of sin is deep self-centeredness. We deify our desires Our impulses are inspired. And so rather than giving ourselves to God's truth, we take our impulses, our appetites, as being the primary determiner for truth rather than being the truth of who God is. Things like advancement, progress, money, luxury, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But the issue with Rome is they were filled with luxury, comfort, pleasure, provision, all of that they had. But as with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, it was for their glory. It was for their majesty. It was for their own independence. And it gave them the sense of we're self-made. We've got this figured out. We've got it nailed down. We have life together. And who needs God? We get intoxicated by what is seen. We don't live with humble gratefulness, but we live with arrogant self-sufficiency. That's Rome. It's Babylon. It's Egypt. Verse three, then the woman, then the angel carried me away into the spirit, in the spirit, into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast and was that was covered with blasphemous names. That seven heads and ten horns. Once again, this seems to be referencing the original beast that we looked about at back in chapter 13 that symbolized the, the kind of earthly empires that are used often as a tool of Satan to breed arrogance and self-sufficiency into human beings. Verse 4, there's, we read things of like she was dressed in purple and scarlet. Purple was the color worn by Roman emperors in the Senate. Scarlet was worn by Roman priests says that she was 
glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Verse 5 of Revelation 17, the name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Listen, friends, just real quick. Sin, evil, glitters. Satan is not stupid enough for sin and evil and wickedness to show itself for what it is. It glitters, it sparkles, it allures us, it draws us. Anytime you find a Christian who says that sin is not initially fun, they're not telling you the truth. It is. It feels good to be independent from God. It feels good to be self-made. It feels good to be your own boss. It feels good for your impulses to be inspired. Sin glitters, evil glitters, but it's a fake kind of glitter because underneath there's only rottenness. Once again, in verse 18, it tells us that the woman is the great city of Rome. Verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. Just a sense of overwhelming grotesqueness here. Remember, it glitters on the outside. Underneath, there's rottenness. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. We're not quite sure what John was astonished by, but most likely it was this idea of here's this beautiful woman who's the prostitute. It looks attractive. It looks alluring. It looks appealing. And yet, here she is drunk with the blood of God's holy people. And so there's this unbelievable beauty and horrific grotesqueness. Listen, friends, evil will never seek to show you the grotesqueness of the inside. It always glitters. It always sparkles. (laughs) It allures us. It draws us in. Remember, earlier it said that her name was written on the forehead What was written on the forehead was a symbol of identity, who you belong to. This was Babylon, the essence of allurement, the essence of arrogance. Remember, John is writing from and about Rome. So Babylon is actually part of his code language of, because he really can't be discovered, speaking these kinds of things of Rome. And so he uses Babylon as sort of the epitome of self-centeredness, and arrogance, they're seen as evil before God. One other thing before we move on. Remember last, or a couple weeks ago, we said that Revelation is often a book of counterfeits. There's the counterfeit of the dragon, beast, and false prophet, that sort of Trinitarian influence of evil, counterfeiting the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We mentioned how dragon is the counterfeit of Father, beast is the counterfeit of Son, and false prophet is the counterfeit of Holy Spirit. Notice there's counterfeit women as well. There's the prostitute that glitters, that's beautiful, that's alluring, that pulls you in, that draws you in, that looks good from the outside. And yet in the inside, it's horrific levels of rottenness. Later on in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, John points to Jesus or the church 
as being the beautiful bride of Jesus. Listen to this in Revelation 21:2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Listen, friends. Sin is glittery on the outside. It sparkles. But inside, there's only rottenness and death. And we could probably go around this room, and every one of us could get a story of being drawn in to the allure of disobedience to God, finding life apart from him. And yet every one of us could complete that story and say, it only led me deeper into darkness. On the other hand, there's the bride of Christ, those who are responsive to the person of Jesus, those who belong to him through faith, who are united to him. And there's beautiful bride, not because of what they have accomplished, not because of their independence and arrogance, but they're only beautiful through the righteousness, the beauty of Christ that's given to them. And so what I simply want to ask you is this, which woman would you most identify with? Is it the prostitute that's self-made, that's a consumer that tries to extract life. You're drawn into the lure of that. Or do you belong to the beautiful bride of Christ who's beautiful not because of your behavior, not because of your performance, but because you've been given the righteousness of Christ? Which beauty are you interested in pursuing? Which beauty attracts you? Which beauty do you give your life to? Do you eat and drink to the glory of God? Or do you eat and drink to your own pleasures and consumption? Do you eat and drink to your own self-sufficiency? Or do you eat and drink out of gratefulness and glory and thanks to God? Are you part of the beautiful bride? Or are you being taken in by the lure of the prostitute. You won't really read the rest of the verses in, or look at them individually in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, there's a number of verses that talk about uh, seven kings. Uh, Rome itself was built on seven hills, so the seven hills there certainly refers to Rome. Talks some language about five which were, one is not, another is to come, there's an eighth. Rather than probably, I would say, being mechanically treated, probably the, simply the idea of the continued progression of the earthly and worldly influences that we deal with. There's several times it talks about the, the mystery of Babylon. It could be a couple things referenced there. Number one, part of that mystery is the nature that even though Egypt, Babylon, and Rome were destroyed, somehow that prostitute nature of power and the allure of sin continues. Could also be, as we're going to find out in just a few verses, that evil, God causes it to self-destruct. Yes, he steps in in judgment, but also self-destructs. Verse 13, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. These are the governments of the world giving their power to the influence of Satan. Verse 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lord and King of kings. 
And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. You know, sometimes at baptisms we mention this, but that, that in, those, in ancient times, em- the emperor of Rome was literally called Lord. The emperor was Lord. The emperor was king. And so this is simply John saying, no, like Jesus is Lord of lords. Jesus is king of kings. Romans chapter 10 Verse 9 says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's Paul speaking. In other words, if followers of Jesus declared in that time, Jesus is Lord, they were stating something absolutely 100% contradictory to Rome. Because the mantra in the Roman Empire is Caesar is Lord. This is God saying, no, I'm Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of lords. Yes, you might call the emperor Lord, but Jesus is Lord of every Lord on earth. The emperor might be called the king, but Jesus is the king of every king who claims to be so on earth. Jesus is Lord of lords and king of kings. Verse 16, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Again, the, the self-destructive nature of evil. It can't perpetuate itself. It can't sustain itself. It eventually crumbles, is crushed. Sin ultimately leads to death in every way. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. I'm ask Sharon to come up and read Revelation chapter 18. As she reads that, and we're not going to make too many comments on it, I would simply say this. As she reads it, you're going to hear the complete collapse of Babylon or Rome in John's audience's time. You're going to hear the utter collapse of arrogance, the utter collapse of self-sufficiency, the utter collapse of the sense of self-independence. A number of times you're going to hear the little phrase, one hour. In other words, this is not going to be hard for God. He lets things stand for a season of time, but in one momentary hour, it's all going to collapse because Jesus is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. So Sharon's going to read Revelation 18, 1 through 20. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief 
as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all you had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Thank you, Sharon. I'm going to leave most of that stand on its own. You can hear just the utter destruction of Rome that stands in self-sufficiency, economic prosperity, political power, military might and strength, kind of the marvel of the world. Its impact is felt all throughout the empire as merchants and the common person gain levels of influence and prosperity through the essence of Rome. And then in verse 2, with a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which stood as powerful, that which seemed to be the source of life, that which seemed to be solid and secure in an hour. In a small amount of time, becomes absolutely reduced to nothing. 
It's shown to be for what it is. In spite of its arrogance, in spite of its pride, in spite of its self-sufficiency, it's utterly dissolved because only God is the giver of life. Verse 20, the last verse that Sharon read since says this, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. In other words, there's a day when God is going to straighten out the score. There's a day when that which is truly victorious will end up being victorious. And that which only has the appearance of victory, that which only has the appearance of glitter on the outside, of, has its allure, has its a sense of, of power and dominion, but instead it's fake, it's passing, it's temporal. It goes away, it's dissolved in a moment because only God is the giver of life. Only he is the foundation of that which is permanent and true and good and just. Let's stand and pray and let's ask that God would make his people who are his faithful followers, who base our lives on his truth rather than on the passing allure of what we find around us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that you are king of kings. You are Lord of lords, that you have authority over all things, that life comes from you alone. And so may our hope, may our trust, may our confidence, may the anchor for our lives be in you. Protect us from the allure of that which is passing. Protect us from the glitter that we're tempted to base our lives on. And may we instead find life in you alone. Thank you that through Jesus, we can be your beautiful bride. May we worship you. May we honor you. May we be faithful to you. We ask that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Our prayer team is down to the right. We'd love to pray for you. I think the bagels are still out in the foyer, so grab something before you go home. God bless and have a great day.